Hello and welcome to the Unsung Podcast. Introducing the sports stars you don't know, telling the stories you can't miss. With 2023 coming to a close, we've got something a little different for you in this episode, as we review the year through the lens of sports unsung heroes. If you've listened to previous unsung episodes, you might recognise some of the voices featured here. We've got anecdotes and insights for every month of the year, and if you'd like to hear more from anyone involved, be sure to check out episodes 1 to 9 from our archive. But let's begin way back in January, with the PDC Darts final starting the year off with a bang, as Michael Smith claimed his first title with a win over three-time champion Michael Van Gerwen. The 7-4 victory included what many have called the greatest leg of darts ever seen, as both players set themselves up for a perfect nine-dart finish. As anyone who's ever been to the darts will know, a boisterous and well-fueled crowd belting out Chase the Sun is one of the best nights out in sport. But the growth of darts is down to how successfully it's managed to transfer that energy and atmosphere through to the millions of TV screens tuned in back home. It's a remarkable feat given that, unlike the vast open stages in football, cricket, athletics or motorsport, most of the action in darts occurs on an area no bigger than a postage stamp. Central to this achievement are the commentators who set the tone, and whose adrenaline-pumped hyperbole makes you almost forget that you're simply watching two portly blokes throw a bit of tungsten eight feet. And it's in the grandiose spirit of the late, great Sid Waddell that the commentators here elevated the greatest leg of darts into a viral hit that would transcend the sport and be discussed by people who previously thought an hockey was a type of pasta. Kudos then to the brilliant Stuart Pike and Wayne Mardle. Got to find a breaker throw in this set if he wants to level up the World Championship final. Uh, Michael Van Gerwen is a in any mood to give him a sniff. Yeah, the the combination finishing in this game is going to be key. You can tell by the way they're scoring. There may be nothing in it. They may both be on nines. Michael may miss and Michael may hit. They're both on nines. They're both on a nine. This is insane. Come on. The World Championship Final, Michael Van Gerwen is on a main data in the World Final and just misses double 12. Over to you, Michael Smith. One man misses, does the other man get? I've never seen the like. Come on, Spully Boy. Yes, double 12. Absolutely spine-tingling stuff. So let's move on to something a little bit more sedate. As February brought with it, the Alpine World Ski Championships. Set in the beautiful French Alps in Courchevel and Meribelle, it was the Swiss who topped the medal table ahead of Norway and the USA. But as with all winter sports these days, the real story was taking place away from the cameras. The French resort, a former Winter Olympic host, historically sees an average snow depth of 178 centimetres at the top of its slopes. But in February this year, the snow was only half as deep. The result was a reliance on snowmakers, whose eight fan guns and 134 snowlancers saw the event go ahead with all the white powder it needed. 
Snowmaker Brooke Vanderkellen from Michigan-based SMI Snowmakers told me she was in no doubt as to why their snow guns are as in demand as ever. I am a third generation in this business, so I sort of grew up here, like running around in diapers and coloring and doing everything. So I feel like I've worked here for my entire life. (laughs) Climate change is real. Um, So it's something that's very heavily looked into. Snowmaking is becoming more and more popular with resorts just to ensure that they can open it for their customers and provide their customers with a great experience. One thing in particular that we've noticed is what we call snow gun density. So instead of having snow machines that are 150 meters apart from each other, 100 meters apart, they're, they're going to 20 to 50 meters apart. They're getting snow guns that are closer and closer. So that way, if there's a temperature window of say a day or two, they can, re- they can open a trail very quickly. So that has been a, a trend that we're seeing in this industry. So sort of our goal now versus back then is how do you not only make snow, but make it in a more energy efficient way in a higher quality type of snow. That episode of Unsung titled Snow Whispers also featured a man who believes he's found an energy efficient solution to dwindling snow levels. Miko Martikainen is the eternal snowman who's come up with a system that can prevent snow from melting during the summer months, ready to be unleashed when winter's first drop falls. And when that happens, Miko continues an annual ritual. When the first snow comes, uh, wherever it would be in the world, wherever I am, I stop. Everything stops if possible. I go to the closest restaurant or if I'm home, I open a bottle of cognac. Then, with his cognac in hand, Miko plays a record to salute the winter's first drop. Rachmaninov Piano Concerto number two. So we're five minutes in, and we've gone from Ali Pali and Planet Funk to climate change in Rachmaninoff. Is this what they had in mind when they said carve your own niche? Who knows? On to March, which brought with it the start of the new Formula One season. For Max Verstappen, it was the driving equivalent of setting your cruise control at 70, then not touching your pedals for three hours up the A1 while catching up on that seven-part podcast series on the Aztecs. Is that just me then? This year also saw the launch of the F1 Academy, a new all-female racing series, Its inaugural season was won by Marta Garcia of Prima Racing, while Britain's Abby Pulling finished fifth. In a sport that's never really waved the flag for feminism, it's a promising development. In Parc Fermé, the wheel-changing, history-making, glass-ceiling-smashing Amelia Rath gave us a flavour of her first ever pit stop as a female F1 mechanic. We don't hear anything during the race. It's complete silence. And then all of a sudden the principal comes through and he says, pit crew, stand by. And when that happens, like your heart, well, my heart needs to start pumping. And like the adrenaline is fantastic. Like that is what I live for. And that was like, no, you know what, Amelia, if you smash this pit stop, then you, you can walk free. All you wanted to do was one pit stop. And this is your moment, you know? So we run out to the grid, helmet down, and you know, the whole world is watching. And when that car comes down, driving towards you, everything just stops. It takes so long, yet it drives so fast towards you. I was on wheel off, but I was standing opposite to a lot of the other guys who's wheel off. 
So I, I would be the first one he would hit, you know. He drives so quick, but everything goes so slow and he comes in. And obviously you're so trained at this point that you know exactly what you're doing. And before even knowing that car was off again, and the only thing I could think of was like, did we actually change that wheel? Like, did we remember to, to tighten it? And it was perfect, you know, it's a perfect smooth pit stop. In April, Spaniard John Rahm earned his first green jacket at the Masters in Augusta, Georgia, outmuscling Brooks Koepka and Phil Mickelson in the meatiest contest you'll ever witness in front of a backdrop of pink azaleas. But we dig a little further back in the field to find our unsung tale, where a Michael McDermott bombed his way into Augusta's hidden folklore. Unless you're the sort of person who's already planned their Augusta Champions dinner menu, mixed kebab then lamb rogue and josh, since you ask, you're unlikely to have heard of McDermott who got his first opportunity to play at the Masters this year despite not being a professional golfer. That's because McDermott is the tournament's official non-competing marker. Whenever there's an odd number of players making the cut, it's his job to step up and ensure that the single pro doesn't go around on their own. Markers are also called upon when there is a withdrawal from the field. McDermott was taking over from another Augusta member, the enigmatic Jeff Knox, the amateur who performed the shadow role for 20 years. Marker's scores aren't officially recognised and you won't see their names on the scoreboards but it's believed that Knox was so accomplished around the course that he not only went toe-to-toe with the likes of Bubba Watson, Ernie Els and Jason Day but the story goes that he even claimed the prize scalps of Rory McIlroy, Sergio Garcia and 1987 Masters champion Larry Mize. In 2018, he was the only player in the third round to birdie the 11th and he also holds the course record of 61. This 2017 clip from the PGA Tour gives you an idea of the esteem in which Knox was held by both players and members within the hallowed surrounds of Augusta National. He's back, a cult figure in his own right. Augusta National member Jeff Knox made his 10th start as a marker here at the Masters as his 53 players made the cut and the on man out, Jason Day, needed a playing partner. Knox, who has the Augusta National course record of 61 and famously beat Rory McIlroy in 2014 in the third round, shared his magic with the major champ and gave the Aussie a little boost. With big shoes to fill, a 48-year-old McDermott got his first call up this year when Kevin Nah dropped out injured during the first day's play. The new marker would be tasked with keeping 2003 Masters champion Mike Weir company and he began in a fashion that suggests he'll have no problems keeping to Knox's elite standard. On the first tee, he smoked his opening drive 310 yards down the fairway, some 40 yards ahead of Weir, proving that these secretive Augusta markers aren't just there to make up the numbers. Actually, no, that's literally the only reason they're there, isn't it? Moving swiftly on to May, where the Premier League was wrapped up in convincing fashion by everyone's favourite underdog, Manchester City. Under the leadership of renowned perfectionist Pep Guardiola, City have left no stone unturned on their journey to becoming the generation's most dominant Premier League club. There are hundreds of reasons behind their success. Some might be tempted to say 115, but in sports, continuing obsession with marginal gains and increasing focus on nutrition is among them. City and England star Phil Foden joined the swelling ranks of footballers hiring private chefs in their homes in a bid to improve their on-field performance. Foden needed to boost his iron and omega-3 levels, so he hired a chef from a specialist company called Discreet and Delicious, who'd work closely with the club's nutritionist to fuel Foden with wild salmon, honey, soy and whole grain rice. We know all this only because Foden's mother Claire revealed it to the Daily Telegraph. Otherwise, private chefs are required to keep their work strictly confidential, as Rachel Muse, founder of Discreet and Delicious, and our guest in episode 7, explained. I've worked for all the big families. I've worked in lots of very high-profile jobs. And the real important thing is that you keep your mouth shut 
for your own protection. And also you keep your mouth shut because what you see in someone's house is private. Everything you see, everything you hear, any information you overhear, not because you're listening at a door, but because they're talking right in front of you, all of that belongs within that house. It is never to leave. It is never to come out of that house. And that's what I say as I'm training chefs. I say to them, you wouldn't be taking light bulbs from the house. You wouldn't be taking knives and forks. You wouldn't be taking cushions from the house. All of those things belong in the house, as does all that information that you hear. It belongs in there. And that's why I think we've been so successful and we're so trusted. It's because we're not going to be on the phone to a gossip column or or a journalist and say, oh, look, um, so-and-so wears purple pants or whatever. It's sacrosanct. Interestingly, clients know that we are not going to talk. Some clients say, oh, yeah, let's have a contract for this year, but let's have a break clause in January. You're like, oh, break clause in January. Mm, Okay. But this is why they tell us these things, because they know that we're not going to be tweeting that sort of information or putting information out there in the public domain because they they feel they can trust us. And and how often does it happen that a player said to you, can I have a break clause in January? And then that player has, has ended up leaving in the transfer window. I always think that January is a big old load of nonsense because in reality, how many people do move in January? Very, very few. Last season, it was absolute chaos because of the World Cup. Quite a lot of people thought, well, I'll go to the World Cup, I'll come back a megastar, and Paris Saint-Germain or, you know, Real Madrid will be on the phone. And it's the transfer window immediately afterwards. So, like, I'm just going to... Those between the start of the season and the start of the World Cup, a lot of people were just like, let's just get through this. I don't feel I'm still going to be at the same club the other side of the World Cup because I'll be an international superstar. That worked for some people, didn't for most people. So when people came back from the World Cup, they were like, oh, yeah, Real Madrid's not on the phone. I haven't heard from Barca. I guess I'm staying. Better get a chef then. Despite adding the FA Cup to their Premier League title, Man City weren't quite done. And in June, they added their most coveted piece of silverware to their collection. The Champions League final was held in Istanbul and saw City facing rather unexpected opponents in the shape of Inter Milan. For City, they'd never have a better chance of claiming their first European Cup and an historic treble. City fans have long had a strained relationship with the Champions League, often booing the famous anthem since UEFA sanctioned the club for financial fair play breaches in 2014. Whatever next. In episode 5, as well as discovering how the composer responsible came up with the anthem, I found a big stirrer and a bigger pot and dared to ask Tony Britton what he thought about the fans who jeered his hard work. What we found was a middle ground whereby people who didn't understand music could say, oh, I like that. And that was it. Oh, then I said to them, well, okay, so where are the words? <laughs> I do remember that. They said, well, words, words? I said, well, we're not going to sing it to la, are we? Well, maybe you want to sing it to la. It's going to sound a bit stupid. So, so they didn't um, give you the words then? No, they said, well, what do you suggest? I said, well, look, what are we trying to say? And that was when we got into the, the real meat of it, which was the very interesting part, which is what are we trying to do with this music? 
I mean, you have to bear in mind, I don't think the word brand was ever used in our discussions. And I was working mainly with a guy called Craig Thompson, who's American, not from a soccer background, from a sports marketing background, who was running team marketing and who's still a dear friend. And it became clear that what we were trying to do with the whole thing, not just the music, but with the, the graphics, the starball, the way of presenting it, was twofold. The important bit was, and I think it's to UEFA's credit, that they wanted to restore the beautiful game to being a beautiful game because it had got pretty ugly. You know, the hooliganism, the, it was really bad. And they were determined that they were going to make this a class act. You know? I wrote down a whole load of superlatives, the best, the greatest, the most exciting, the fastest, well, whatever. I've still got them somewhere. <laughs> And then I employed a, a, a multilingualist because it's three, the official UEFA languages are English, German, and French. So I just got him to translate literally all those phrases into French and German. And then I kind of whisked them around, and the rest, as they say, is history. One thing, getting the tick from, from the corporates, from UEFA. But what the anthem manages to somehow do, which is the impossible of being able to unite the corporate, the footballers, and the fans. And obviously football fans are notoriously critical. But most of them seem to have taken the anthem to their hearts. Yeah, it seems, apart from Man City. Yeah, good point. But I, I, yeah, what do you think about that when they build the anthem? I think they need to grow up. But there again... <laughs> They're football fans, you know. From what I understand, what they're actually booing is you. Originally, they were booing UEFA, and they were booing UEFA because of that whole pay cap thing, which was all a lot of bollocks, really. And you know, it, but it, they were all so excited when Pep Guardiola came to them, and he must. They must have got really pissed off because I'm told that he publicly said to them, "Will you stop booing the anthem? It's yeah. just nonsense." Because he really likes it. I know that for a fact. <laughs> he thinks it's great. So even he can't stop them booing. I'm rather hoping that they will redeem themselves because I think they're probably going to win at Istanbul. In which case, I'd like them to sort of, kind of, it's a mark of respect. Well, it will, it's, the, it's the real litmus test, isn't it, to see if they boo the anthem at the final in Istanbul. Yeah, exactly. You boo the anthem at the final, you deserve to lose, you <laughs> morons. Coming next, we're off to the sunny and sweaty mountains of the Tour de France. But first, a message from our big money sponsors. It's nearly Christmas, which can mean only one thing, a shamelessly shoehorned advert plugging my own book. Unsung, Not All Heroes Wear Kits, published last summer from Pitch Publishing, is the book that gave birth to this very podcast. Its 12 chapters include some of the topics we've touched upon in the podcast series, including snowmakers, ground staff and performance chefs, but also other hidden roles behind the scenes of sport, including chaplains, kit designers, anti-doping officials and more. If you'd like to get your hands on a signed copy for less than a tenner, thereby meeting universal secret Santa requirements, simply head to unsungbook.com and enter the message you'd like me to dedicate to your dad, sister, grandma or colleague. Profanity is not only allowed but heartily encouraged. Last year, someone asked me to write Merry f Christmas, you filthy animal, and it was the best sentence I'd handwritten in decades. See if you can beat that at unsungbook.com. We've made it to July. 
where we find the unmistakable sight of lavender fields, snow-tipped mountains, and crazed fans sprinting the wrong way down a road wearing only speedos and face paint. It is, of course, the Tour de France. Denmark's Jonas Vingegaard was the 2023 winner, boasting a victory so comprehensive that it wasn't only the lavender that the Tour's regular followers could smell. In France especially, a familiar whiff of scepticism emerged from some quarters of a sport that has too often been mired in the mucky stuff. But while cynical quips about Man City are one thing, accusing cyclists of doping takes a braver and better journalist than me. And it's worth adding here that Vingegaard strenuously refuted any suggestion of juicing, saying that he wouldn't take anything that he wouldn't give to his daughter. So while I work out just how much faster I can pedal after a tin of alphabetty spaghetti, here's a clip from when I spoke to Graham Watson, the legendary cycling photographer who spent four decades perched precariously on the back of a fast-moving motorbike, metres away from the likes of Eddie Merckx, Miguel Indurain and, of course, Lance Armstrong. And despite doping being a murky and often taboo subject, it's an area of sport that I find fascinating, particularly from the viewpoint of those tasked with covering it. So it was a subject I was both eager and a little bit anxious to ask Graham about. Just how did he now feel about his hard work during those tainted Armstrong years? Not to mention the snaps he took of other disgraced cyclists before him. Graham's answer was articulate and thoughtful, but also, I'd say, a little surprising. The work I did, I was totally happy with it. I'm uh, not just Lance, but uh, several other people, like say Festina and even people before Festina. Sometimes you can wear two or three hats, and most of the time I was wearing my hat as a photographer. And you, you have no other thoughts as to what might or might not be going on. I mean, in hindsight, we've all been proved quite wrong. But, you know, you, you, you want the best picture of that person on that day. By and large, you know, it's the, it's the winners that get caught. The way I've dealt with it over the years, because there have been so many occasions when, you know, cyclists I've photographed and perhaps, in, you know, cheered a little bit publicly, have come up as, as, if you like, if you want to call the word cheats, call them cheats. And I just think, oh... So what? I mean, it's not my business to say what they should and shouldn't do. It's their job, and they probably had to do what they did. And I just try and you know remember what that. What if Lance won a stage of the Tour de France in two thousand four, or uh, Alex Zula or Richard Varenk won a stage of a Tour de France for Festina, and you got some great pictures, and it was and it meant them winning those stages meant so much to so many millions of people around the world that just freeze it in time. Enjoy it for what it was. People loved it. I loved it. And and just leave them be. Move on. I'm, I'm, I'm probably a bit rare in the sense, you know, most people say, no, lock them up. Send them to the Tower of London. They're cheats, they're cheats. But we all cheat. We all cheat. And that's that's how I've dealt with it over the years, is to, if there ever was disappointment, if you ever thought the world was going to end because, you know, Marco Pentai had been pushed out of a, a tour of Italy for some doping infraction, you recover very quickly because, you know, you get selfish. You've, you've, you've built your business. I built my business. And I wasn't going to let any of these guys ruin it for me. So I found, found a way of enjoying it, of getting over the, the shock, if you like, and any, any disappointment and just moving on. And cycling is also a sport which is very beautiful. Um, I don't just mean the scenery. I mean the actual, the beauty of riding a bicycle. It is, is quite a, for some people, it's a very beautiful thing. And there's so many uh, positive things about um, cycling that they overcome the negatives. Well, at least they have for me. On your marks, set, it's time for August. And we're at the World Championship Athletics in Budapest, where Team GB enjoyed a successful fortnight with highlights including Katarina Johnson-Thompson's gold in the heptathlon and Josh Kerr shocking the favourite Jakob Britson in the 1500 metre final. 
But if your appetite for athletics can only be satiated every four years, when those five little rings make their appearance on your TV screen, the good news is you're in for a treat next summer in Paris. Especially in the 100 metres where America dominated in Budapest, thanks to the charismatic pair of Noah Lyles and Shikari Richardson, with both likely to be headline acts at the Olympic Games next year. Lyles also added the 200-metre title, making him the first man to claim a World Championship sprint double since a certain Usain Bolt achieved the feat in 2015. In Start Me Up, we heard from the man who once disqualified Bolt from a World Championship final, when all the world tuned in, expecting to see the Jamaican break his 100-metre record. Here's Alan Bell describing the moment that sent shockwaves through the sport. And the real skill in my job is you wait until everybody is at the pinnacle of their set position and they have all been absolutely still in that position. Nobody has moved up and kept going. And when you're happy, they've all had that opportunity to get into the still position and concentrate, you pull the trigger. The key thing for you to consider is the chemistry between the nine people involved, i.e. eight athletes and the person with the gun is unique to that event. So there can't be a prescribed time. It has to be on, entirely based upon what I see and the judgment of readiness based on my experience. Then I pull the trigger. And, you know, it's fair to say probably at a major event between set and pulling the trigger, I'm holding my breath. I'm holding my breath because I'm praying I don't have to pull the other trigger. Oh, my word, it's a false start. I think Usain Bolt's false started. No. I can't believe it. I think Usain Bolt almost unthinkably. It'll take them a second or two to reset as, my, as uh, now the card is being delivered to Usain Bolt. Within a millisecond, there must have been 150 cameramen on the track looking to milk his embarrassment. Now, I've, you know, I've got to know him quite well as a human being, and he's a um, resolute, determined character, but he's also a really decent guy, and he didn't deserve that. So I sent the Koreans, I said, you know, get him off the track, put him somewhere where a camera can't get to him, and, you know, let him, let him have his remorse. In September, the Rugby World Cup began in France with a group stage that seemed destined to go on forever. The drawn-out format was entirely vindicated in one moment, however, as anyone who witnessed the unbridled joy on the faces of the Portuguese players will agree, following their country's first-ever victory with a thrilling one-point win over Fiji in the final game of Pool C. And Portugal are winners at the World Cup for the very first time. Fiji have been toppled in to lose. Listen to the noise. This is a squad formed entirely of World Cup debutants and captained by a dentist. Then, what followed from the quarterfinals onwards was some of the most pulsating, brutal and edge-of-your-seat games of rugby ever seen at a World Cup. It was a much-needed success story for a sport that has been blighted by recurring concerns surrounding the potential long-term health impacts of playing the game, particularly at an elite level that was professionalised only as recently as 1995. Rugby is trying its best to evolve its laws and practices to ensure it is a safer sport to play, but it is proving to be a tricky task. Ahead of a World Cup which saw a number of red cards handed out for head collisions, I spoke to Dr John Mayhew, who was the All Blacks doctor for over 15 years. 
we discussed the sensitive topic of head injuries, with the doctor pretty much predicting the scenario we'd see in the final, as South Africa defeated a battling New Zealand side who'd been reduced to 14 men when Captain Sam Kane was sent off for a high tackle. You do develop a relationship with these players, but I think as a, a rugby doctor or a sportsman's doctor, you've got to still think, okay, this may be the, the most famous rugby player in the world, but he's still a patient. And as a doctor, you know, you're on the field sometimes and you think, well, I know the state of the game. If I take Richie McCaw off, it could affect the outcome of the game. But if he has to come off, he has to come off. And you've got to put your sort of team allegiance aside. And that can be hard sometimes because you may... You may have the coach, you know, and you're you know, sure he has to come off or, you know, but it's educating the coach. Believe me, as a practicing sports medicine doctor, the management of a concussed player is one of the hardest parts of the job. You know, now in professional sport, we've got the sideline video, we've, we're linked up with the coaches, we have spotters in the crowd, we have all sorts of things to help us. And we still miss Henry. I was at a game last night with North Harbour playing Otago and one of our players suffered a head injury. I couldn't see it in real time, but the independent match doctor you know, looked at the video and drew it to my attention, and, and the guy was concussed. So we're managing those sort of you know, players better now. I think some of the rule changes in rugby have gone a bit too far. You know, like rugby is a contact game, and head injury will be a consequence of that and head collisions. and. We saw in the, the Irish series against the All Blacks last year an All Black prop getting sent off when he tackled a player and his head hit the opponent's head. You know, it's completely accidental. Red card, I mean, it, it sport the game. The, the All Blacks played for, you know, 60 minutes with 14 players. And, and I'm worried that sort of thing will happen in the World Cup. That it's well-meaning, but, you know, you've got to allow that there are going to be some accidental head injuries Obviously, we want to reduce that as much as we can, but by red carding an accidental head collision, to me, is not the solution. From rugby union to rugby league now, as October saw Wigan Warriors defeat Catalan Dragons in the Super League Grand Final, bringing an end to a four-year winning streak for St Helens. There were 58,000 watching on in Old Trafford, and among those in attendance was a group from Community Integrated Care, which I'm proud to say is the unsung charity partner for this podcast. This leading social care charity delivers 10 million hours of care annually to people with learning disabilities, autism, mental health concerns, dementia and complex care needs. Their revolutionary inclusive volunteering model sees a partner with top sporting events to tackle society's deepest inequalities, enabling thousands with complex barriers to enjoy sport. Through the charity's official social care partnership with the Rugby Football League and Super League, people with learning disabilities enjoyed fantastic voluntary media placements at the pre-game press events in the build-up of the grand final. They also published an easy-read guide to Rugby League created by 14 people with support needs with help and guidance from the RFL. The fans combined their lived experience of living with a disability and their own knowledge of the sport to create a guide that is accessible to all. To download the guide or find out more about the charity, visit communityintegratedcare.co.uk. Now, just when you thought the Rugby World Cup was the longest sporting tournament ever held, cricket stepped forward and said, hold my beer, snake. By the time of the final on the 19th of November, the tournament had lasted a calendar-chewing 46 days, which was especially brutal for an England team whose reign as champions had essentially ended after just 10 of them. But, like those nominated actors glued to their seat with a rictus grin as their rival collects the Oscar, England were forced to hang about and play the rest of their games anyway. With few close contests, the tournament won't exactly be remembered as a vintage edition, but there was still plenty of joy to be had when smaller nations like Afghanistan and the Netherlands upset the big boys. Post-India were dominant throughout, 
except when it mattered most in the final, when Australia did what Australia do best, piss on everyone's chips and look nonchalantly unruffled when doing so. Bastards. In an episode that I scrambled to get out before England were knocked out, I spoke to former operations manager Phil Neal, who spent decades touring with England's cricketers and mercifully had many successful moments to talk about, including that amazing World Cup victory at Lords four years ago. I remember it all as, as something fantastic that, that I was proud of doing. I worked for 47 years in cricket and never worked in, a, in an office. You know, I always worked in a dressing room environment, either football or cricket. And the, the little incidents where I was co- you know, working with the players on cricket and was able to help them do certain things. My memory is a funny thing. You know, there are, people ask me about certain things and, and I, can't have, I don't have a single memory of a, of a certain tour or I get confused between which tour of India that happened in. But then you have isolated memories where it's as clear as a bell. I can picture myself in an indoor school in Johannesburg throwing round the wicket to Owen Morgan to try and replicate Mornay Morkel bowling at him. And having a, just a fantastic session with him for about half an hour where I really challenged him. And, and those things are special to me, you know. And the 2019 World Cup was a special one because we couldn't have got any lower than we did at 2000, in the 2015 World Cup. To start that journey with Owen Morgan and, and Trevor Bayliss, but I mean, it was Owen, Trevor was the coach, but it was Owen's team. I mean, the captains that, that, that I worked under, NASA was ideal at the start because we had to be tough and uncompromising, hard to beat. Handing over to Vaughan to be a bit more adventurous was the right time and the right thing to do. Owen Morgan was definitely the best captain. It was his team. He led by example, which is something that I would try to do. One of my favourite pictures is my wife, Chris, and I were on the field celebrating after the 2019 World Cup, and I got a picture with Owen, me and Chris, with the World Cup in, in between us. So. Fantastic. Special, a special photo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know, what an, what an unbelievable end to that match as well. Just, you couldn't have scripted it any more dramatically, really. The, the interesting thing, after that match, the, the celebrations were going on, and this is a, an insight into how my job was different to what everybody else was doing. Ashley sidled up to me as director of cricket and, and said, uh, Phil, will you just tell the lads they've got to be on duty at the Oval at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning for a coaching session with a load of kids? I said, you what? <laughs> you, you want me to tell them that? This is in the dressing room. I actually had a row with Graham Thorpe because I did impart that information and Thorpe started having a go at me. and miss, I said, Thorpe, just shut up, will you? I've got to do my job. How did that news go down? They just ignored it, basically. Yeah. I, and I, couldn't, I wasn't convinced they'd all taken it on board, so that left me with the issue. So then I had to go because at our hotel we'd arranged a, a party. And we were, I don't know, two or three o'clock. I went to bed from this party and, and I'd got no idea if the players were all good. So I'm sending messages at, at eight o'clock in the morning saying, remember, you've got to be on the bus at 10 o'clock. And we turn up the oval. Obviously, everybody's looking for the worst for wear. And there's a load of kids, but there's even more parents. And the parents were more of an issue than the kids were because they all wanted autographs and pictures. Yeah. And So the players went down and did their... their um, their duty with a bit of coaching with the kids and blessed Surrey County Cricket Club the Oval they always look after the players well there and the dressing room's quite luxurious dressing there they've got some black leather sofas that people can lounge around in so I eventually get the lads up off the pitch and we walk into the dressing room and Surrey bless them have put some beers on <laughs> so the lads collapse into the armchair and start drinking again Why and so it was hell to get them out of the dressing room we got back to the hotel about 2 o'clock and they went straight in the bar now, at six o'clock, we're due at number 10 Downing Street to meet the Prime Minister. And, and I've got to get them out the bar at six o'clock to get them on the bus. And they'd just got changed. 
So they're well oiled by the time we get to Downing Street and we go in and we have the function and we have some chats in the garden and all this sort of stuff. And we've got to walk from Downing Street to where the bus is parked. So you've, you've got that long walk that, that you've seen many politicians do and prime ministers do. And we've managed to get everybody gathered just behind the front door. And there's, a, there's sort of a reception area there. There's a piano, there's people were leaning on the piano and it was moving and they were knocking pictures off the walls and and they're singing we are the champions and i'm i said owen please <laughs> just put your captain's hat on for a minute we've got to get from here to the bus and we cannot walk out singing we are the champions we've got to get a group for this and to his credit he managed to get some sort of order and they got on the bus before they started singing again <laughs> straight back to hotel and on it again <laughs> We've now reached the month of December, which leaves this review of the year in a bit of a conundrum in that this is currently being recorded in November, which leaves me with no other choice but to honour Mystic Meg's passing earlier this year and indulge in a bit of sporting soothsaying. I predict that December will bring rotten weather, the FA Cup second round, and therefore some torrentially battered and bruised football pitches that will require the magic touch of the country's most dedicated ground staff. People like Tony Stones who started his career tending to local pitches in Barnsley before eventually reaching the pinnacle as head groundsman at Wembley. But it wasn't all plain sailing at the top, as he recalls his first FA Cup final experience when underdogs Portsmouth decided to try and tweak the pitch to their preferred specifications. At that time, Wembley were getting absolutely hammered in the press. To the stage when I worked my first year there, we never, we never bought a newspaper because it were always somewhat bad about us. There'd be photos or as diviting with buckets, putting putting grass in, in buckets, divots in buckets. There'd just be absolute spiel about our bad pitches. Not the fact that it was just debris, but no matter what we did, it were always getting hammered. Portsmouth Chelsea, they said they could train up pitch the day before, which nearly made me cry. Because <laughs> anybody who knows what in groundsmanship, if you let the underdogs train first, they're going to chew it over for, because that's going to give them advantage to make pitch a bit bobbly. So Portsmouth came and hammered it and did a penalty shootout. Peter Check came on and said, why am I playing on potato field? So like nine o'clock at night, day before cup final, we're, we're taking a metre square slab of turf from behind goal and putting it in penalty spot. And you sat the whole game with your head in your hands playing, please, no penalties they send. <laughs> please. After replacing the butchered turf, Tony endured a sleepless night, praying that no spot kicks would be awarded. The last thing he and Wembley needed was the FA Cup being decided by shifting sands. Unfortunately for him, his appeals went unheard. And the next day, referee Chris Foy pointed to the spot. Twice. Aruna Dintan. Scott beyond Belletti. Dintan goes down. Penalty! The first penalty went to Portsmouth, at the opposite end to where the turf had been cut up. But in an act of karmic comeuppance, Kevin Prince-Borteng scuffed his shot and allowed Czech to save with his legs. Boateng, saved by Czech! The second penalty went to Chelsea, and Tony could barely watch as the ever-dependable Frank Lampard placed his ball on the replacement grass. And then all of a sudden, oh, Frank Lampard's got a penalty. <laughs> you sat there and your ass is going like that. Oh, my God, please don't move. And Frank Lampard had got the winner in last season's FA Cup final. There's a chance to clinch victory in this season's. And he's missed it. Two penalties missed in an FA Cup final. That's never happened before. 
After going from Wembley to the Stade de France, Tony Stones is now head groundsman at Premier League Brentford, meaning he'll be among the many working tirelessly over winter to ensure that football fans can enjoy their usual feast of festive fixtures. Let's raise a glass of mulled wine to that commitment. So there we have it. 2023 through the eyes of its hidden sporting heroes. Huge thanks to those featured who took the time out of their busy lives to speak to me and whose dedication and passion for their sport has my undying respect and admiration. 2024 promises to be another belter in the world of sport and we're aiming to be back in the spring with a brand new series of Unsung, introducing yet more sports stars you don't know, telling the stories you can't miss. If you've enjoyed any of the first 10 episodes, please do consider telling your mate or even leave a nice review if you'd like to make a smile like a Portuguese rugby player. Until next time, you can keep up to date with my latest work by subscribing to the Offfield newsletter over at offfield.substack.com. This podcast was produced by Matt Cheney. Artwork is by Matt Walker. And the executive producer is Sam Barry. My name is Alexis James, and I wish you all a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Until next time in 2024.